And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. Gerard Manley Hopkins from God's Grandeur. Welcome to the Deep Down Things podcast, a partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into Catholic thought, culture, and everything in between as we explore the depths of God's grandeur. Hi, welcome to the Deep Down Things podcast, a podcast partnership of Logos, a journal of Catholic studies, and the Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. I'm Dave Devil. I'm the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture, and a professor here at the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. And I am joined by my faithful co-host, former managing editor of Logos, but award-winning speaker and, and all-around servant for the church, Liz Kelly. Liz, how are you today? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you? Fine, fine. Uh, we have a guest today from abroad, uh, not, not too far, but at least six hours in time. Uh, we have Bonnie Lander-Johnson, who's a professor at Cambridge University and who is the author of a wonderful article in Logos called Art and the Work of Suffering, Houselander, Ellis, Salvafici Dolores, and Laborim Exerchains. Uh, Bonnie is uh, also the series editor for a great new series at the Catholic University of America Press on uh, women writers of the English Catholic Revival. We'll be talking a little bit about that uh, during our conversation, but Bonnie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Bonnie, can you say a little bit about uh, your background and your uh, your faith journey and your intellectual background? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm actually a, a, a an English literature specialist by profession. So I came to um, this the Catholic Women Writers Project um, from uh, an unlikely angle, maybe. I'm a practicing Catholic, but I don't have the kind of disciplinary training <clears throat> that um, I thought I would need to work on this material. And um, so, in fact, it's a project that I do uh, together with a colleague and, a, and an old friend, Julia Mitsaros. She and I were at, at Oxford together, and um, we lived together at the chaplaincy and stayed good friends and wanted to work together. And she's a theologian who works on 20th century literature. Um, and we thought this would be a good way for us to stay um, in each other's lives when family life starts to, you know, draw people apart. And in, in fact, it's turned out to be this really terrific, very intellectually and um, a personally rich project that's kept us um, having to work quite a bit to to find a language uh, in which we can um, communicate our ideas that are uh, neither neither sort of professional university inlet uh, yeah. nor nor theology in a sort of um, straight up disciplinary sense um, both of which we've had felt frustrations with throughout our careers at various points um, and so this project seemed really uh, like a good fit because we had to also find a voice that was accessible. So the books are um, designed for a, a broad lay readership. Um, the introductions, we write quite lengthy introductions for them that are grounded in scholarship, but are written very accessibly. And should uh, uh, the, the very challenging brief that we gave ourselves was to write introductions that were um, as much for uh, non-Catholics um, as for Catholics and um, also opened up some of the literary questions as well. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think we're getting we're getting even better at at meeting that brief. We've done three so far, and a fourth is it's on the way. But it meant that we had to um, think quite hard about uh, what it is that we valued in our university disciplines and how to retain that while still speaking to um, a kind of ordinary Catholic experience, which is something that we both are very interested in articulating better. Um, We often felt in our lives like our capacity as um, academics to describe lived experience was wanting and we wanted a kind of theology of the everyday and I think that's one of the things that fiction does so well and one of the reasons that we're attracted to reading um, stories especially Catholic fiction because we want to see the big questions played out in the littleness of ordinary life Mm -hmm. and that's a long answer to your question Um, I could keep going but I'll (laughs) yeah well what's what's the range of time represented I mean what are is there a kind of uh a beginning point. We will go. We will go no further back than 1870, or and how far? How close do we come in the series to the present time? We're open to um, anything, really. the The oldest one that we're looking at is the Inchbold, which is already uh, in print with um, Penguin World Classics, and that's the late. Oh, I think it's late. It's the 17th century, actually. It's quite um, early, or maybe. Uh, sorry, late 18th century, early 19th. And then we've got a concentration of titles um, at the point that you would expect uh, because it's primarily a sort of Catholic literary revival um, series. So um, the Josephine Ward titles and some of her peers in the 1890s and then a whole lot around the interwar period. That was a really, really rich period um, uh, for for women in, in the UK especially. And then uh, we've got a lot of really recent titles, which are harder to get because we have to negotiate with um, other presses to access rights. So that's an ongoing issue. But a lot of the really great Irish writers that we want are sort of 1980s, 1990s. So um, we've got enough material to keep us going till um, we're old ladies. Um, but but we're definitely no, we're definitely open to any time period. We'd be interested in translating works that were not originally written in English as well. Um, and we are so, we're not just fiction either. We've got a biography coming out soon and a collection of essays and some short stories. But primarily, um, it's it's novels. But no, we're we're interested in a whole lot. Did you uh, well, you know you talked about how you wanted to get at a particular something particular in this that's neither purely literary nor purely theological in a speculative sense, but instead is about uh, ordinary life. Um, is, uh, you know, your article for us on Carol Hauslander and Alice Thomas Ellis was focused on um, work and suffering and art. I mean, is, is, are those the, the parameters that you're looking for or is, there, is it something, something broader? Yeah, it's striking how many of these women writers um, had a lot of other stuff going on in their life. They were often, you know, um, visual artists as well, um, uh, or, you know, publishers or um, um, editors, um, just going through the list in my head. They, they were often very, very active in a, in a parish sense. Um, some of them founded parishes in their area. So they were really um, very active women. Um, and it's, uh, 
it's funny that a lot of them turned. So this is one of the questions that I was trying to, to sort of address in that article. A lot of them turned to fiction writing to work through a serious event in their lives, like the mm -hmm. loss of a child, mm -hmm. um, uh, the loss of a sister uh, or a spouse, um, a mental uh, breakdown of some kind. Mm -hmm. And um, and I've, I keep coming back to this question. And, and in fact, it might be something for sort of philosophers of aesthetics and, or, and psychology. I don't know, because I always feel like I, I don't quite have the answers, um, but there is there is something in their work that seeks. Um, I'm not going to say healing because I'm actually I haven't found any evidence that they felt healed <laughs> by the process of writing fiction, but they felt compelled to write, and somehow the product um, was more powerful. Somehow their artistic capacity was engaged by suffering. And that's really what I sort of find really interesting. That they may have written novels before, but they weren't necessarily that great. But they became profound once they had something you know, really burdensome to work through. So there's, there's you know, there, there is clearly something in the idea that artistic production has that um, sanctifying capacity Mm -hmm. And that isn't just of benefit to the writer necessarily, um, but is actually somehow of benefit to us, which is in keeping with the Catholic uh, teaching on salvific grace, uh, right? Um, and I, you know, I, I, I'm struck, I think Benedict XVI made that amazing observation that the two great apologists of the church are the saints and the artists. Mm -hmm. And we all know that most of the great artists are not necessarily very saintly <laughs> i mean maybe not at all right yeah. mm -hmm. but there's something so unique mm -hmm. that they bring to um the the spiritual community in the broadest sense mm -hmm. and which i think often is so much more tangible to us than reading about the life of a saint perhaps mm -hmm. because yeah. there's something about fiction that um handled with integrity has a kind of holy dimension and uh, a, a, some of the women have have observed some of these women writers have observed things like it is the holy spirit that produces the art object out of me things like that um which i find quite remarkable um and i so there's something about storytelling that i think is you know essentially mystical but for us as catholics actually kind of specifically engaged with um with certain experiences to, around suffering and grace that I think we can all say we kind of, a, we recognize, but we haven't got a, a clear articulation of. Does that make sense? I think one of the, like my favorite line from uh, one of the papal documents, Subhiti Dolores, was JP2 talking about how suffering unleashes love, that, you know, if suffering had a vocation, that would be part of it to unleash love in a world that needs it so much. And the way you're describing uh, the interaction of these authors with their work, it's very similar that art does something similar in that it also kind of unleashes love or it presents an opportunity maybe for love to be unleashed or for something authentic to be encountered in a way that, um, you know, the papal document itself cannot achieve. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yes, it's true, isn't it? There's something about the fact that we're reading the lives of ordinary people themselves undergoing suffering, and we, the fact of it being a story, we're able to, 
to walk with it and have that experience become bound up with our own lives in a way that we feel changed. And I, I'm not sure if the writers feel changed by it. I think they do, but um, it might not be as straightforward because of the pain of writing, right? <laughs> Drafting and making something is a, is a more painful process than sitting down and just reading it. So it is a gift. I think that was one of the things that struck me in those encyclicals as well, that there's a, that in, in art of this kind, it, the, the art object is the gift from the artist to us, actually, um, and that, you know, um, Carol Hauslander especially, she only wrote the one novel quite late in her life, and she was obviously renowned for these phenomenal works of spiritual prose, and she just got to a point in her life where she realized, she, felt, she said she couldn't preach anymore um, to her fellows she needed to walk with them in their suffering. So she created characters out of the sorts of people that she knew in London mm -hmm. and um, made them available to us. And, and I, I think I will stick my neck out and say for the women writers, there does tend to be slightly more of this emphasis on the community of characters. Whereas, um, you know, if we take our main examples that we, you know, everyone knows war and green, often we're dealing with um, a single character, uh, you know, up against it, living through a range of um, uh, spiritual challenges, um, even if the, the spiritual nature of the challenges is sort of oblique behind um, uh, the, the ordinary, but it's nonetheless a kind of series of um, uh, moments of, of change for, for an individual, as it were. And I, I think often with the women, we deal with a, a, an ensemble, and with Houselander, that was explicitly her intention. And, and I find her so interesting as a literary critic, I find her interesting because she was working with modernist literary techniques that a lot of her Catholic peers disparaged. You know, this was a very controversial moment in the 20th century where modernism in the church was really very, very controversial. But the, the cognate literary movement in the 20th century was um, and, and is, a, you know, a defining quite amazing uh, set of literary techniques that we're still trying to kind of understand. And Hauslander said, look, I'm not, I'm not gonna disparage these artists. I don't think they're the egoists that everybody makes them out to be. They're asking serious probing, often very spiritual questions about the human condition. And they're finding technical ways to, to realize that in fiction. So she used their literary techniques, but put press them into a very sort of Catholic service as it were. We, it's the only novel I know where we meet um, a, whole, a whole parish. Each member of the parish gets a chapter. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's quite, to create narrative drive out of that is quite skillful because we're having to listen to a different voice every chapter, but we don't put the book down. And that, I mean, she's managed it because there's one story that threads the whole thing together. They're, they're priests that they love, you know, one of these kind of um, interwar priests that you would, you wish you knew who just gives away everything. He's always giving his boots away and, and walking barefoot and um, he can't sort of, you know, do enough, but he's not, he's not pious, excessively pious. He'll, he'll be sitting in your front room having a beer with you, um, but he'll, he'll never stop. He'll just keep stopping in on people's houses and checking on them and um, very um, simple actually, um, uh, but very um, available and very um, giving of himself. Anyway, he dies and the whole parish is at a loss. And then um, they start to pray this novena 
um, for a miracle. And so we see them all at certain times of the day falling to their knees, wherever they are at the, at the sink. Or, and this is a Docklands parish, very working class, very impoverished. Um, and so they're all trying to scrape two, two pounds together. Um, but they all stop and say this collective prayer. So we, in terms of the narrative voice, we get to see from the point of view of, of the reader and, and the narrator, we're seeing them all drawn together through their prayers into this great mystical drama that's um, being articulated subtly throughout each chapter. And then we see it in the final chapters where we, we see them at this big mass. And she manages to narrate both the the ordinary lived experience of the mass and the great angelic drama going on at the same time, which is quite a feat, right? To do mm. in fiction and to, and to get the tone right. Um, mm. And her, her conclusions, phenomenal, are theologically really just very beautiful. And um, mm. so I, I, I haven't encountered that in any other kind of, of Catholic novel where we get to glimpse that whole community working together at, on both the ordinary and the, the divine levels. Have you ever read something about the Catholic faith or a topic by a great writer or theologian or philosopher and you wish that you could personally ask them about something they'd said or how they got to their conclusions? We experience this at the Logos Journal daily. And while we have the opportunity to learn more from that person, it's not a conversation that only a few people should be able to have. We think a lot of you would be interested in knowing and learning more. The Logos Journal and our St. Thomas Catholic Studies friends and supporters need your help to do this. It takes a good deal of effort to get the access and produce a podcast that is meaningful and helpful to you. We hope that you'll go to our podcast website, patreon.com backslash deep down things to become a monthly subscriber. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a podcast patron and in return get access to some really great bonus content like online access to the journal articles we discuss, additional spiritual reflections, and bonus episodes offered by Father Byron Hagen and Father Bryce Evans, great friends of Logos and priests in the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis. That's patreon.com backslash deep down things. You know, this sounds almost like a Russian novel with all of these characters. Did you, do you, did you for the series, think about any special apparatus other than the introductions to uh, to help people along in terms of keeping track of these things or with these some of these novels. I mean, I you know teaching university students as as you and I do. You know, uh, something from the 1950s is to them, uh, you know, another world. Uh, did you did you provide any of that in the series or anything since it's being published by an American university press? Anything that translates some of the Britishisms or anything like that? Yes, you've got me there because we did promise. <laughs> we intended to do footnotes, yeah. glossary, and even I think at one point we were thinking of putting in um, additional materials like relevant letters and diary entries and oh, wow. stuff to each edition. Uh, yeah, it would have been amazing. Huge mm. editorial work. Yes. But that, that was when we thought there was only about five books to be doing. And then we <laughs> started digging deeper and we realized how many novels there are. So we kind of emphasized, we put labor instead into just getting these women back in print. Yeah. So we're turning them around quite quickly to a year. And um, sorry to say it's just the introduction, but we, the introductions are quite long and you get 
from um, you get a you get a bi biographical sketch of the writer and the period in which they're working, um, a kind of an overview of some of the literary elements that are going on, and then some um, an overview of the theological patterns that they're engaging with. And in the it's through that intro that we um, provide any of the details that might seem uncertain. So don't, yeah, there's no footnotes, but if you read the introductions, most of those should be clarified. I would say too, though, with these writers, they are, they were, they're actually popular in the sense that, so Sheila K. Smith, for instance, who's the next one out, she was a best-selling novelist who wrote, mm -hmm. um, I mean, there's nothing, there's, there's not much that you wouldn't get, you know yeah. what I mean? Um, I mean, compared to a Russian novel, for instance, they're, they're very, um, they're written in quite accessible language, almost what we would now call commercial fiction, to be honest, is yeah. what you get with Kay Smith. Not so much with Houselander, but it's not a very long novel and she does really write in a very accessible way. Um, uh, when, when we get to Josephine Ward, who's coming up soon, she was a friend of Newman's and really the most sort of mm. theologically um, sophisticated in the sense that she was um, in that first generation of English Catholics after the hierarchy was reinstated and there were so few of them that they were working together. I mean, they lived their life to, to try and make this um, revival of the church in, in the UK work or to you know, hold. And so they, they all met. I mean, Newman came and catechized chil the children of these families. They all knew each other. And they, they had salons and they met and they were so engaged with the need to uh, enliven a kind of Catholic let, life of letters that um, you can feel the sophistication behind the writing in, in a theological sense, but actually the way that they wrote was clearly aimed at ordinary readers because it was to a certain extent um, evangelization. Mm -hmm. Although it's, you know, it's top-notch literature, so you don't feel like mm -hmm. you're being preached at, but they, that's what, that was one of their aims, to, mm -hmm. to, to get our stories out there. So, so I don't think that um, uh, uh, lay readers will find much in these that they need explaining. Mm -hmm. What about the, uh, <clears throat> what about the, uh, the mix of them? Would you say most of them, a lot of the Catholic revival authors were Anglican converts or otherwise, would you say the mix is, is mostly converts or mostly, uh, you know, cradle Catholics or, uh, you, you know, these were, as you say, these people all knew each other. What, 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 what would you say is the overall background of, of people who wanted to, to write about these things? Oh, they're overwhelmingly converts, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> what it was about this moment in history, um, but they are overwhelmingly converts. Um, some, some when they were children, so their parents were converts and they came over with the family. So it sort of happened, I mean, it, you know, it was a family decision, but a lot of them made the decision as, as adults uh, um, and, and through meeting each other. Um, Sheila K. Smith and her husband had a slightly longer journey. They were high Anglicans who uh, were very involved in the Anglo-Catholic movement. Um, and when the Chestertons converted, she and her, so her husband was an Anglo-Catholic priest, um, Penrose Fry. Um, and when the Chestertons converted, the two of them basically were, were the, the Anglo-Catholic lecture circuit. They traveled the country promoting um, the Anglo-Catholic mission. And, you know, like many Anglo-Catholics, 
sort of kept worrying whether they ought to step over, but were held back for all sort of all sorts of reasons, and then did eventually come over. And looking at their biography, their lives really changed radically when they did. It's quite interesting that you could be that sort of close to the church, to the line, as it were, and then just make that step, but have it be so radically transforming. They, they had to give up their um, parish um, and become, you know, lay people. Um, but they founded a parish in rural Sussex where there wasn't one and uh, ran it until they died. Hmm. And she, Sheila K. Smith is an interesting case because unlike um, some of the other writers, in fact, becoming a Catholic made her less invested in fiction. She was a best-selling novelist from age 18. She was famous for writing these Sussex farming novels. Uh, quite a few have been picked up by Virago Press. So she was quite a well-known, you know, commercial um, English writer. And she wrote uh, one novel just as she was converting. And then after that, she, she wrote Lives of the Saints. <laughs> so I think that for her, it, becoming a Catholic kind of did it. It was enough. She didn't need to to be in the story realm anymore. She wanted to be in in the in the world of the parish. Really, she ran this very busy parish there on her farm, and mm. found that fulfilling. So I find her really interesting for that reason. I don't, you know, I don't know if anyone's done an in depth study of what it was about this particular moment in history um, that ha had so many high profile uh, conversions, especially amongst artists, but. I do find that um, when we read about what the church was like um, before the war and then Vatican II, it was really so um, all-encompassing. You couldn't do it in by halves. You know, the 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 hours, the liturgy, the the training that you went through. It was like entering into um, you know what what we would consider the rigor of a monastic organization now, but ordinary people were doing it and finding it um, shaping their imaginations in ways that they hadn't known before. So there, there must have been something about that moment, uh, combination maybe of the world turning modern and the church still holding these traditions that made them feel like they were entering into another, another world, another place. I don't know. I'm thinking about it as a cultural historian, obviously not as a theologian. I'm sure right, the theologians right, would have right. something much more astute to say about that. Well, it's, uh, I mean, would you say that there was a bit of suffering engendered by, I mean, maybe Sheila K. Smith didn't consider giving up fiction, you know, a bit of suffering, but was, was there suffering from any of these writers when they did become Catholics? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I wonder whether uh, a sense of, um, responsibility and um, I mean a major shift in identity such that the, the K Smiths were no longer I mean her husband was no longer the parish priest he had he lost it he lost identity um, which is you know still the case you know in England we frequently meet Catholics who used to be high Anglicans and, and then you discover that they used to be priests and now mm -hmm. they're ordinary lay Catholics and I always think well good on you because Mm -hmm. You know, that's a major sacrifice. Um, yeah. And uh, I think it's obviously the right, it's right that there should be some sacrifice because, um, yeah. you know, <laughs> the, the path to truth shouldn't be easy. Um, but, but I still think, well, you know, yeah, you, uh, you're giving up 
phenomenal resources. You know, the Catholic Church in England doesn't have any nice buildings. We don't have, we don't have all the history. They, you know, so you, you're giving up a lot of sort of social, um, personal contacts, community, and in his case, serious identity. And so it may be that they had to reorientate their lives such that, um, that they were looking for healing, but they found it in, in parish life rather than, than in fiction. In terms of some of the others finding the writing itself as, as a source of um, suffering, I, I get the impression, I don't know, David, you, David, you know quite a bit about um, Alice Thomas Ellis as well, mm -hmm. but she certainly wrote her first novel, um, or she wrote one novel which was very formative and um, uh, um, I'm, I'm going to say not great. It wasn't that great. It was great. It was good, but it wasn't yeah. great. And then her 19-year-old son died. And then she wrote Birds of the Air, which was just yeah. heartbreaking and beautiful. Um, and after that, she was writing one every couple of years. Um, but I'm not sure that writing made her happy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, and then when her, you know, when the publishing business went bust, it, it, writing was the only way she could actually make, you know, feed her many children and herself and keep the whole thing going. Right. Um, and yet I think her books kept getting better and better. So I, I, I do wonder with her whether, you know, and I mean, and the history of, of women writers does often have that survival element. A lot of the first female novelists wrote literally for money um, mm -hmm. because they had no husband or, you know, um, uh, had been widowed or had been become destitute or, or um, so I think there might be sufferings attached to the process of, of writing that might be real and economic and, and in other ways might, yeah, be um, personal. What's the beauty that comes out of this? We talked about suffering leading to love. And, uh, but, you know, you have an emphasis in, in your article, and I think it's probably there in the, in the books too, on, on beauty being produced. Um, how, would you, how would you characterize the beauty that's, that's produced when when uh, many of these women do convert or they do have these tragedies? Uh, is, is it just love is convertible to beauty or is there something that we can separate out? Yeah, I need, I need, a, I need a theologian to talk to me about beauty because I've, I feel like it's not, um, as a term, it's, I mean, when we're dealing with fiction of this kind, um, it's, it's often, um, grimy, mm -hmm. um, messy, you know, we're dealing with messy human life. Yeah. Um, and one of the things, especially someone like Houselander, um, Ellis, Ellis through her kind, I mean, she's always got a slightly ironic position. Um, Ellis and Muriel Spark, they're both kind of high ironists really. So, yeah. um, but some, someone like Houselander, who's really just such a genuine um, writer and a, a genuine observer of human life, um, she's very careful to show divine grace transmuting human suffering into something truly um, un, unarticulably beautiful, you yeah. know, un, phenomenally beautiful, but also still somehow a part of the lowly. Um, yeah. So she's very, you know, she was very interested in, in Christ's indwelling and in finding the... Um, Finding the full beauty of Christ's love in the in the the broken, and mm -hmm. to the extent that you know she doesn't try to change, doesn't try to transform the broken, but to be with it and see that it is in itself already 
containing beauty, if that yeah. makes sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so she's, you know, that's, that's, I think, really what we want from a good novel too, isn't it? We want to feel that we've touched something um, ordinary that we can uh, um, recognise um, that is in our own lives as well, um, but to see that it is connected to something um, mm -hmm. beautiful, uh, which would be Emma's yeah, grace. One of Hauslander's just genius capacities is that her emphasis on it's not about escaping suffering. <laughs> It's rather about entering into suffering and then, as you say, letting that suffering be touched by grace such that it can be transmuted. So none of them is running away from their suffering. In many ways, they're trying to run to it and capture it and express it um, and, and then allow the reader to watch that transmutation. It's like they, they make that transmutation visible um, in their in their novels, and I think that's one of the great powers that that the uh, the works that you're bringing forward really have in common. Yeah, I think there's a huge generosity in Houselander, especially. Yes. Um, she, I, I do think she was a very lonely person, mm -hmm. um, but she surrounded herself with friends, and she was. I mean, you would oh, she would have just the, would have been the best friend. I'd have loved to have known her. Right. She couldn't. She didn't have enough. You know, she was always giving of her time, um, obviously hilarious and good company, but also just so wise and ready to share her wisdom and to, um, I read a philosopher the other day who said that, that love is, is the, the willingness to um, um, analyze, I don't think that was his word, but to interpret, to interpret, is the willingness to interpret another person, to actually take the time to, mm. to look at their situation and try and understand it um, and it's something we very rarely have time to do but it's what we expect from spouses for instance you know but she was she did her all her time was spent in in trying to understand what other people were going through mm -hmm. trying to articulate it for them through her capacity as a, a basically a spiritual counselor um, I mean she was kind of a psychologist too she would heal people who for whom the medical establishment had given up all hope especially because she was such a, good, such a good listener yeah children yeah, especially she especially was especially children and it's interesting too that um though she had this healing capacity that kind of irradiated out of her it didn't necessarily apply to her it didn't end her own suffering uh there was something about the way she embodied her own suffering and was willing to enter into that suffering which was the vehicle for the, you know, part of the healing of the others around her. That in and of itself was a great sacrifice and, and a point, I think, of generosity. It's kind of always offering herself for the healing of others and not so much concerned about her own. Um, yeah, because she was often really physically unwell uh -huh. as well. Um, uh -huh. and, and she wouldn't talk about it. She just got uh -huh. on. Uh -huh. um, even on her deathbed, she was converting the nurses. <laughs> Um, I would have loved to have heard we, we don't there's no written record of what she said when she when these conversions took place I just I'd love to know whether it was just you know have a casual chat with a few prime sentences thrown in or whether she really went for it you know yeah, yeah. and and sort of told them all about it but you know you would just she'd be in a lift with someone and they'd come out a Catholic <laughs> mm -hmm. I'd love that
Well, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. I mean, you know, I've, it's been attributed to many people, but, you know, writers are to be read and not seen or heard. Um, but that's the great thing is uh, to see the person behind this. And this is a wonderful project. Uh, we're about out of time, but could you say a little bit about how people can see your work and uh, if you have any projects going on apart from the production of all of these novels? Oh, other than the novels, um, well, uh, that's a good question. I write academic books on Shakespeare, but they're yeah. kind of niche to the university Shakespeare <laughs> world. Um, I have some um, essays uh, coming out in um, uh, literary journals um, like uh, Dapple Things and Hinterland. Um, so I, yeah, so um, I hope that there's some other other material that's that's more accessible on on the way out, and that um, this this project is the beginning of of writing for a, a, a broader audience, um, not just the sort of closed university we'll, world. We'll put this. We'll put all of this into the show notes. But can you give us the exact title of of the series? I don't think. Oh yeah, so it's it. um, Catholic Women Writers um, with the Catholic University of America Press. Right. And the first title, The Houselander, is out. You can get it direct from the press or um, Barnes & Noble um, or Amazon if you have to. Um, <laughs> and in the UK through uh, Foils or Amazon. Um, yeah, they, are, uh, they come with extensive introductions, which I hope people enjoy. And um, yeah. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes. Yeah. Thanks. We absolutely will. Thank you for joining us, Bonnie. It's been a delight to talk to you. Thanks, folks. It's good to see you. Yep. Thanks, Liz, as always, for being being here to probe our, our guests uh, with great questions. Thank you. All right. And we thank you, the listeners, for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things partnership between Logos Journal and the Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. We hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deep down things. That's all one word, uh, deep down things, uh, to become a patron of this show and to continue the conversation. We thank you again, and we'll see you next time. God bless.